0: I always sort of look for like a spiritual, whether you're religious or not, um, there's, to me, there's always a spiritual aspect of storytelling and the fact that these three, while separate, are having their lives threatened, it's that cosmic connection that they have that actually gives them the power to fight off their adversaries. Welcome to the Madeline and Becca
1: podcast. The mission of our podcast is simple, to inspire professional self-confidence in women everywhere. I'm Madeline.
2: And I'm Becca. On our podcast, you will hear stories from real world influencers, women who have experienced tremendous success in their careers by building self-confidence. Thanks for joining us. We are so excited to welcome back award-winning film director and scientist, Dr. Valerie Weiss. Last year, Valerie directed episodes 7 and 8 on Netflix's number one hit, Outer Banks. In season 2, she directed the phenomenal episode 5, and she takes us behind the scenes. Valerie will share her creative vision for the episode, the broader theme of navigating parent-child relationships, her process for tying together all of the captivating scenes, and the evolution of the characters in season two valerie will also tell us why the show continues to resonate with an audience of all ages if you enjoy this episode be sure to hit subscribe and leave us a review it helps us to bring you more of the content that you love
1: we are thrilled to welcome back award-winning film director and scientist valerie weiss We had the pleasure of speaking to Valerie last year about her career journey from science into filmmaking, strategies for overcoming the imposter syndrome, building self-confidence, and, of course, all things Outer Banks. Valerie directed Episode 5 of The Darkest Hour in Outer Banks Season 2. Welcome back, Valerie. We're so happy to have you here today.
0: Oh, thank you. I love talking to ladies, and I uh, I love talking about Outer Banks. My favorite subject.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let's just start for our listeners who haven't seen Outer Banks. They're, they're crazy, but can you just give us a, a brief <laughs> overview for they for those of them who have not uh, have not watch the series yet.
0: Yes, for like the two people out there who haven't seen it yet. Um, So it's a wonderful series on Netflix. It's YA based, young adult based, which means it's about a bunch of teens on this island called Outer Banks, where everyone either has two houses or two jobs. And it's a classic story of the haves and have nots, but done with a wonderful aspirational twist that feels also very real and grounded and um the main story is this this boy the 16 year old boy john b who's sort of uh the leader of the pogues um which is what they call themselves his friends who are part of the have-nots um he in episode one of season one finds they find a boat that's um, a sunken boat um after a hurricane and in it he finds a very curious um thing a compass that belonged to his father now his father's been missing for nine months because he was chasing 400 million dollars worth of gold on a ship a sunken ship called the royal merchant and everyone thought he was crazy didn't exist he doesn't know if his dad's dead or missing but finding that compass from his dad sets off this treasure hunt um, of him and his friends that just uh, changes everyone's lives and leads to romance and um, testing loyalties. And it's just, uh, the show is action packed, but fun. And I think the reason we all watch it is the friendship and the loyalty is, is just unmatched.
1: So episode five also features um, a montage of storylines that were captivating, kept us on our toes the entire time. What, what what was your overall creative vision for episode five and translating that um, from a script into yeah. a visual story? Um, so I
0: was really excited to come back for season two. In season one, I got to direct two really exciting action-packed episodes, episodes seven and eight, um, where so much came to a head. And then when I came back for season two, Jonas, one of the co-creators and showrunner, um, called me up and he was like, "Valerie, you got the best episode. Episode five is amazing. I'm so happy for you." And <laughs> and I read it and I was like, "Oh my God, he's right. It is incredible. It's it's right in the middle of the season. It's kind of like a, a mid season finale if it were the old model of of network um, network shows. And it's it's true. Like everything that's been building from the end of season one comes to a head in my episode. And so." in this case um three main characters john b jj and sarah all are in dire straits Um, john b is being tried for murder and he's um being uh choked to death by an inmate um, in this montage that you're talking about Um, sarah is being drowned by her brother rafe on a on a ship boat a shrimp boat in the middle of the night and out of earshot of anyone and then JJ, JJ, who had the brilliant plan to break John V out of jail, um, is trapped in an ambulance being chased by three uh, police vehicles that are, are onto him and his, his um, not so bright plan. And so they're all at really the darkest hour of their lives. And so when I talked to Jonas, um, when I talked to Josh Pate and Shannon Burke, who are, are also co-creators in the episode, of the series and talked about my episode with those guys um we talked about a few things you know the classic reason we love outer banks is seeing these friends together and then i got an episode where except for the beginning they're really all living separate lives um they're they're not really in scenes together very much and so i wanted to make sure we still created what we all love this feeling that they are together even though they're set in separate um, environments. And then the other thing too, is that really helped me sort of uh, figure out how my vision for the episode was that Shannon and Josh talked about loving the way Christopher Nolan um, cross cuts his movies, specifically Dunkirk and Batman. And, and so I took a look at it and I was like, okay, well, what we really need to do is intercut all these scenes with these three characters. And so I asked them if I could take a stab at just sort of rewriting the ins and outs of, of these scenes. And they were very gracious that I could go for it. And so I, I crafted it how I would edit it together ultimately. and presented to them and, and they were amazing they, they liked it and so they just rewrote that section to reflect how I wanted to shoot and edit it and what my transitions would be and just so collaborative and it's one of the many reasons I love love working with this team and I really think that helps contribute to why it's such a memorable memorable episode because we just keep turning the screws tighter and tighter on all of them and we don't know what's going to happen And but we see that they're linked and, you know, I always sort of look for like a spiritual, whether you're religious or not, um, there's, to me, there's always a spiritual aspect of storytelling. And the fact that these three, while separate, are having their lives threatened, it's that cosmic connection that they have that actually gives them the power to fight off their adversaries. And, you um, you know, in that moment of connection, that's where John B gets the strength to fight off his attacker and Sarah, well, Topper's the one who saves her, but it's almost like summoning that savior in that moment. And then uh, JJ, you know, Kiara arrives at the right moment um, to help save him. And so um, sort of that was the vision of tying that episode together directorially for me. It
1: was really well done. <laughs> and. Um, And can you speak um, to the broader theme of um, navigating family and parent-child relationships in this episode? For example, the moment JJ sees his father in jail, or Rafe, um, the the, uh, heated discussion with Sarah Cameron, those types of scenes and um, those relationships.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that the series resonates so much with me, and I think, you know, why i love working with the pates and shannon so much is we're all parents of teens preteens and take being a parent very seriously like i know all those guys are amazing dads and they love their kids like crazy i know their kids um the first thing jonah said to me when i got the job season one was i hope you're bringing your family like it is a very mm. family-centric um, production, But it's also, I think, reflected in the stories and how we make them. And the parents are a part of it to the extent that it still lets these kids run wild and fight for independence. But they have a huge influence on the choices the kids make and how they they act in their lives. And so, you know, I think a lot about, you know, when I came back for season two, I said to the cast and, and I talked to Shannon a lot about this. For me, season one was like these kids who were just fighting, fighting, fighting for independence and to try to be treated like adults, but they they don't know how to be adults. They just mm-hmm. they just want freedom and pow- to be empowered. And then season two, I was like, well what do, the way I see it because it should there should be growth is that world was like, okay, okay, you fought hard enough. Here's your independence. Go. And they're like, they have it, but they don't know what to do with it because they, and they're not that skilled at it yet because they got it so quickly. They didn't, there wasn't um, this gradual transition into adulthood that most of us have. And so I thought season two and would be cool to show sort of that wobbly, um, that wobbly course that the kids are all on between adulthood and childhood. And so I think this episode was particularly fun because it really brings the parents into it in a way um, to help emphasize that storyline and particularly the scene with Kiara's parents. I just love that, mm. you know, she comes back from mis- being missing for three days and of course they're livid and worried and she's, but, and she, and she cares what they think. She obviously really, really still wants their approval and support um, and so there's this great disconnect from what her parents need and want, from what she needs and wants. And they're just two ships missing each other in the night and not communicating. And there's so much pain and hurt. And it's one of the scenes I'm most proud of because it just resonated for me as so true and i I know it did for the actors and you know um jd's mom uh jd plays pope his mom called me after she saw she's like that scene that scene valerie it was so real it's so real and you know i i'm really happy we got to show a parent's perspective in it and you know and it, 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 this theme is is um perpetuated throughout this the seer the series but this episode you know parents taking care kids taking care of kids JJ seeing his dad in jail and realizing Mm. oh god no matter what I do I'm just going to end up like this um so so why fight it and um you know Rafe so desperate to know that he's he's favored over Sarah like Mm. it's just such a classic sibling thing that makes no sense because a parent can and will not choose, but there's something about having a sibling that makes you just really need to believe you're the favorite one. and it's <laughs> it's uh, really perverted in the case of the Camerons.
1: <laughs> and so you spoke a little bit to this, but um in terms of the evolution of the characters this season, it's sort of they come, you know they're searching for their freedom and they're sort of on the cusp of young adulthood. Can you speak a little bit to the evolution of the characters throughout the season?
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's really fun to see how they all grow. They grow so much, particularly Pope. In some ways, I think he grows the most out of the Pogues. And, you know, J.D. and I had a big talk when I got to Charleston. And he had such a good episode, you know, finding the key in his Mima's apartment. And I don't think he knows he's a descendant. Does he know he's a descendant of Denmark, Tanny, yet? I forgetting if that episode was before or after mine I think it's after mine but we knew and so we talked about him moving from sort of this nerdier kid who's the butt of the mathlete jokes to taking on a more leadership role within this um this uh, social circle that he's in and and how we would reflect it you know and we talked about different ways he'd hold himself and, you know, how he he walks up the stairs to the Mima's apartment. We just talked about, like, you know, even when he talks to Kiara in that scene after finding it, we, we really wanted to um, calibrate his performance in episode five so that that epic, epic moment in Jonas's episode—the finale is phenomenal. his finales are always phenomenal. Um, where he's up there and he's like, "Enough of people taking shit from us!" That mm-hmm. he really fills those huge shoes, and so um, I, I think that's the best example of of how these characters have all grown.
1: And in terms of um, your process for tying together all of the dynamic scenes and conveying that it's it's very raw and heightened emotions towards the end of episode five. Can you tell us a little bit about your strategy for doing that?
0: Yeah. Um, You know, we shoot out of order, which always, and that's always a challenge. And so something that I developed on a movie that I did called A Light Beneath Their Feet with Taryn Manning and Madison Davenport, that was a movie about mental illness, a mom who has bipolar disorder and her daughter who's just trying to navigate that and go off to college and feel okay leaving her mom. And so. Um, what I did for Taryn was I made a chart um, that tracked where she was on her mental break. And so on a scale from 1 to 10, you know, I'd talk about physicalization of the character, mentally, the thoughts she'd have, you know, emotionally, where she'd be. And so so that it would feel like a progression in and an arc, which is so important because at the end of the day, when you watch um, some, a TV show or a movie, what you feel is the change, right? You feel if the change feels authentic and the bigger the change, the more moved you are by it. And so, you know, we'd be doing a scene and Taryn would say, hey, where am I in here? And I'll be like, you're a four, you were a three before and next you'll be a seven when we shoot that, but that's out of order. So it was just really helpful to her. And I've used this a lot um, with actors and so, you know, I think it was just important, especially with JJ, you know, on a lark, he decides to break John B. out of jail. And, you know, it's really fun for him at first. And then when he sees his dad, that kind of changes things and changes the stakes. And so Rudy, I've I've been lucky to have two episodes with Rudy that were very emotional for that character. And so we really tracked what he was feeling and doing. And when the fun and games were over, uh, for his character. And so I think that's why that breakdown in the ambulance um, just is, is so moving because you, you're you on the ride with him every step of the way.
1: Yeah, and that must be so great for the cast to have an anchoring sort of number of where they are in terms of the character and the emotions and all of that. That's a great way to do it. I never even thought about the fact that you shoot out of order. I mean, for those of us who are on this side and we only get the pleasure of watching it and not the behind the scenes. So is that typically how it's done? You shoot all over the place?
0: You do, and especially on a show like this, sometimes you're shooting different episodes. You're often shoot- shooting different episodes, even in the same day. And then sometimes you'll have to pick things up from the beginning of the season, and you'll shoot it at the end of the season. And these actors have to manage all of that besides what they're trying to do to fill the scene, like besides their main objective. And so I think it's really helpful when you have a director who's very mindful of it, who knows the show so well that they even know it better than the actor in some ways, where they can track everything and remind the actor why they're doing what they're doing. I also make a chart of every scene. Um, I learned this from there's these great directors, Bethany Rooney and Mary Lou who wrote a book called Directors Tell Their Stories, and they have a chart where they um, track A, B, and C storylines, for instance. I mean, sometimes there's even more storylines in order, and so I have a chart that shows you in order what it is. And so I can pull it up and show my actor, the last time we saw you was in this scene. And yeah. I know exactly what the last, you know, sometimes they just don't remember the last time we saw them. And so it's, it's super helpful for me, but it's uh, very helpful for them.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, it's very interesting to hear behind the scenes, how you actually put that all together and make it all because It looks so seamless when you watch it as a, as a fan and an audience member. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the the scene where um, Topper comes to rescue and, and ends up saving Sarah. That was a very poignant moment. Can you speak to that a little bit and how you captured that emotion?
0: Sure. Well, I'm a huge Austin North fan. I think he's, um, you know, um, I, I would say underappreciated, but I think he's very appreciated. But I think his character has so much nuance and he's such... Um, an unexpected kook um, that's that's what the rich kids are called in the show it's not that he's kooky um, but he always brings so many layers to it that you actually for a character who's supposed to be so rich and so cool he's actually incredibly naive and earnest at the same time and the fact that Austin has chosen those layers uh, for him I think makes the character so unique and watchable and you know, you root for him, but you also don't know where you stand with him. I mean, at the end of season one, he saves John B., but he's not completely reformed, And as you see in, in season two. And so being such a huge Topper fan, an Austin fan, I really wanted to make him a hero of this episode and, and not discount what he's doing. Um, and so it was really fun to work with Austin and just talk about the sincerity of his feelings for Sarah, because I think they always were. I mean, he's misguided socially because Rafe has given him advice in season one. But I think he his heart's in the right place. And so um, that boat scene was so much fun to shoot because, you know, because Sarah's so out of it, he really could wear his heart on his sleeve and I could steal looks from him to her without him having to cover because she's, you know, basically falling asleep on the boat. And to me, it just it just felt super romantic. And we shot at magic hours. We always do. And the sky was just on fire. And um, I was it was just really um, it was a very special scene to direct and kind of like if I were a teenage girl, that would be my fantasy that my first boyfriend would I don't know, just still love me through eternity and, and you know, that the people always love you and are always there for you when you need them no matter, no matter what's going on. Yeah, and I think it is a teenage <laughs> yeah. girl's dream and all of our dream, actually. <laughs>
2: Valerie, can you discuss the argument between Rafe and Sarah at the shrimp boats? You can really see Rafe's raw motions come through, and we get this introspective look at a young man cracking under the pressure of his darker impulses, and it was just an incredible performance. Can you tell us about your strategy for this scene?
0: Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, that was... I mean I, I keep saying these are like my favorite scenes but they really all oh, I loved directing this episode. Um, you know the scene was originally set on a beach and we were scouting to try to find something that was shootable and also cinematic and then Jonas um, Jonas Pate it was he's just so brilliant and I was I was telling him about the struggle and he's like hey I have an idea for a location and so we scouted some shrimp boats and it was like Perfect. Everything everything came together in that idea because then we figured out, or I figured out that we could have this boat-to-boat chase and it would just be um, more cinematic and action-packed. And she's still trapped, but she also has a chance to get away. And so once we locked in, in that location, everything sort of came together for, for how I could think about the power dynamic in this because it puts them a little bit more on equal footing. If they're just in a deserted environment, um, there's less push and pull. And to me, it's really important that there is push and pull because ever since, I think it was episode seven, seven or eight that I did with them where he tracks Sarah and John B down, they're in the Twinkie and he follows them on the motorcycle and runs them off the road and then they have this fight. And what's amazing is Rafe is coked out He's unpredictable and scary, and she does not back down. Instead, she taunts him, and he's like, he's very vulnerable. He's like, I'm gonna change. You're gonna see what I'm gonna do for the family, and she's like, send me the save the date for that. And it's she's such a cool character because she just, you know, pushes his buttons like a sibling does, and so getting those two on that boat in that environment was um super exciting to just let them play and you know we we did the scene over and over with different dynamics where she had the upper hand he had the upper hand and i mean he they're they're so great because they will just play and and drew play drew starkey who plays rafe is such a wonderful actor because he's happy to just talk about it and after each take like you know, I would, he's like, okay, what do you think? And I'd remind him of something that is deep in his psychology from things we talked about in season one. And he taps into all of that. And I think that's why people are so excited about him in season two is you see all these dots being connected and he, he never feels random. It's all tied back to this inadequacy. He feels about not being as loved as his sister. And, um, so it was just really, really fun to have so much meat to play with in that scene. Can you also tell us
2: about your vision for the opening scene of the episode with John B.?
0: Yeah. So when I read the the script, it was so shocking and such a gut punch to see that John B. was actually apprehended and going to jail. Because he had just evaded child services in season one and evaded all sorts of capture for a whole season, and this is his fate. And then the imagery of seeing him in an orange jumpsuit was just crushing. It was so hard to take, and I knew that that was a moment that would um, have a huge impact on the audience. And so we actually shot a ton of stuff in that prison, um, but it's we sort of it got boiled down to a very short montage. Um, which I, th- I think was the right move. And so, you know, for me, some of the imagery that really was important was, you know, seeing that disgusting toilet, you know, when he walks into that cell and it's like, oh my God, this, this is your life. Like you were just in the Bahamas with the girl of your dreams and could have been free and here you are. Um, that just showed how far he'd fallen and he's got that great voiceover about always going lower. Um, and so, it was great to have him be able to write his inner monologue out on those pages um, for his defense because it was a great moment of vulnerability I mean he's such a hero he's so brave and strong and but he's funny he's like he's in every man in some ways um, but he's also mm-hmm. larger than life and and chase just just plays him beautifully um and and navigates those things really well and so given that he's so on the run in season two having this very still moment where we actually get to see what's in his heart and any regrets or where he feels like he let his father down really that's what it's about like i got so close and then i let you down and here i am um was just super heartbreaking and and Chase just gave it his all, all. Let's talk a little bit about
1: um, how you, I know you've spoken a little bit to this about mentoring and collaborating with the cast, um, you know, as as the director. Um, can you, do you have any advice for other directors about how to interact with the cast, how to be a mentor when you're in that role as director?
0: I mean, I, I think re- I felt very lucky to come into the show that Jonas had set such a good energy and environment for, you know, from the moment I got there in season one, I observed that all the cast was always on set, whether they were shooting or not. And they were there to learn, cheer each other on, hang out, support each other. And it it was just so selfless and giving all the time. And, you know, I, I there were scenes I did where, you know, Chase would be on set sometimes and he'd whisper something to me that he thought would be helpful for another actor. Or, you know, it it was just very, um, very fluid in that way. And so that kind of environment, I'd never seen that before. You know, I I kind of had this impression that, you know, the director's supposed to be a little bit separate from the cast and there's a hierarchy. And so seeing that Jonas was such a masterful director, but also had this egalitarian vibe to how he ran his sets. I was like, that feels, Mm -hmm amazing and I, it gets incredible results and so um, I took that kind of vibe to a movie that I just directed for mi- for Netflix called mixtape and um, my three leads are yes. are young girls between the ages of 12 and, and 16 and so I from the very beginning you know the lead is, is a 12 year old and but I'd do all my zooms with all three of them and we'd always talk about, the character in connection with her friends and so anything I did it was always all of us and by the second day of shooting we were shooting this amazing scene about friendship she says I overhear her saying you guys are my best friends <laughs> and literally just met in oh, person okay. during COVID so everything was virtual so they got to set and you know, they still text every day and and I love you, love you, best friend, best friend. And you see it. I mean, when you watch that movie, one of the most amazing things is this friendship. And I really credit, you know, what I learned from Jonas about creating that kind of environment. And, um, and I, yeah, I just... Uh, that's something I'll, I'll always take with me.
1: And what did you enjoy most about directing this season?
0: Oh, goodness. I mean, it was... It was tricky because it was during COVID, so we had to wear masks and we didn't have as much, you know, we did some of our location scouts. We didn't even get out of the car. Like it was a really crazy hard show to prep this year, but it's almost like I've forgotten all of that. Um, What did I love the most? Gosh, I think seeing how much the cast has grown. I mean, that their talents have deepened and their confidence has really bloomed and blossomed. You know, it's it's kind of cool because they went from obscurity to being a phenomenon in, you know, in a very short time, but also during a pandemic. And so really most of their, like, real-life connections have just been with each other. And so I, I think that's really protected, you know, their their hearts and their souls and and kept them very close and so coming back and seeing that nobody was any different season two in terms of who they were was just amazing to see that that was frozen in in time and space and and just their incredible artistic growth just made me really proud and, and happy
1: so in our last interview um one of the things you said that really resonated with both Becca and I, and I know our audience was you explained that when you look at outer banks, it's it's really about chasing something you think you want, but getting some but get, getting what you need. And it almost doesn't matter whether you get the gold. They all need something from the journey because where they are right now isn't good enough. Yeah. Um, they need something to become adults. And so did you find that that was also um, true in season two in their evolution?
0: Yeah, I mean, thanks for bringing that back up because I I haven't thought about that for season two. I mean, I did in the sense that, you know, spoiler alert, you know, uh, Pope losing the cross and them losing the gold and all of, and, you know, Sarah losing her father, really, which is what she thought she wanted and needed and realized, no, she doesn't, or she she can't have him. (laughs) Um, You know, and then the... The teasing that John B is gonna get his dad, which is maybe what he really needs um, for season three, is is super exciting. So I think that still applies. And then back to that other that other theme that I think I'm thinking about, which is where are they on the trajectory to becoming adults? Um, What's neat is that their relationships have been tested, right? Like Pope got to um, be with Kiara and see that that's not a match. Um, and, you know, making this new friend in Cleo, and that exp- the group can, can survive adding somebody into it, I think is super exciting because that's what happens when you grow up, right? You differentiate mm-hmm. and you build the tribe. Um, and, you know, Sarah and John B being tested with their marriage and Topper and, and coming through it to the other side I think all of those things stand for that original idea of you get what you need, but it also shows that there's still growth to be had. That's
1: fantastic. Um, So in conclusion, I know you mentioned that you've got Mixtape coming. Um, Is that gonna be forthcoming in the fall?
0: You know, I don't know the schedule yet. We're still in post-production, but it's going great. And um, yeah, as soon as I know, I'll let you guys know.
2: We hope you enjoyed our episode with Valerie. If you haven't watched it yet, go check out Outer Banks Season 2, streaming now on Netflix. You can follow Valerie on Instagram at valerie.weiss.director. If you enjoyed our podcast, hit subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you always to our home team of friends and family for supporting us in our mission. This episode was produced and edited by Madeline and Becca. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, You are somebody.